One of the things that often came up, um, when I first met Tim, he was at the Australian Museum 40 years ago, <laughs> something like that. Uh, I was on the board. He was a young mammalogist, which means officer commanding mammals. And um, he was beginning to write because, of course, his first degree was in literature and the arts. It's always good to mix the subjects. And then came his famous book, Future Eaters. And one thing that comes out of the uninformed mouths of some of his critics occasionally, what is a mammalogist doing writing about weather and the future? And the point in the Future Eaters, or one of the big ones, was that to understand the nature of Australia, you've got to understand the oscillation, the El Nino and La Nina, the ways in which heating and cooling happen so dramatically and harshly in this incredible wide brown land and its other areas. And so naturally, in understanding all these animals and plants, you had, if you're Tim, to start with weather and climate and that sort of understanding, and the rest kind of developed. And so for the first part of today, he will brief us for about 15 minutes or so on the latest ideas about climate change, and then we'll have a chat about it. So Tim, please. Thanks so, thanks so much, Robin, for that great introduction. Is that, uh, are people hearing the microphone's great, thank you. Look, I'm very, very pleased to be here today, um, in large part because um, I'm here in Adelaide, in South Australia, and this state is leading not only the nation, but the world in many ways as we address climate change. Having, having lived here for seven years, I know that things aren't easy. Nothing is easy when we start undertaking these great transitions. There are political impediments, there's economic impediments, there is every other thing that you want to deal with. Um, and sometimes it feels like you're not making sufficient progress. But from the outside, South Australia looks like it has been going at light speed towards a future that we all want to get to. Um, you know, when I came here in 1999, there wasn't a single wind farm in South Australia. I think the first one was built in 2003. Today, on many occasions, wind is producing 50% of your electricity and is a major export. And that is really only the beginning. In this state, you have also developed a new means of agriculture. The first, I would say, really fundamentally new um, breakthrough in ag agriculture probably since irrigation thousands of years ago. And that uh, is occurring at Sundrop Farms near Port Augusta, where 10% um, of Australia's trust tomato crop is being grown without using a drop of fresh water or any soil. It's all hydroponics and the power of the sun. So what South Australia has showed is that the future of agriculture for crops like tomatoes is really in places that have abundant sunlight and access to seawater. It's an amazing feat, creating 200 full-time jobs in agriculture, that in itself is a rarity, but also you can see producing these tomatoes with so little waste that it is going to be the future of uh, some crop growing like tomatoes. You have also, just in the last few months, put in the world's largest grid-connected battery, lithium-ion battery, 
amazing to see that happen. Just fantastic. So again, congrats. And you are about? Sure. And you are about? Sorry. Thank you. I didn't realise quite how bad those mics were until I picked up this one. <laughs> Thank you. You are about in this state to lead the charge into the hydrogen economy. Plans were announced today for a hydrogen super hub at Crystal Brook and you already have plans afoot to build a 15 megawatt hydrogen plant at Port Lincoln, which will be providing, my guess would be, 10 to 20% of Australia's nitrogenous fertilisers from the wind, from the sun. How incredible is that? Today, we make nitrogenous fertilisers through using fossil fuels, things like gas. You are pioneering a new way in this state to do that. And as the hydrogen economy builds uh, ahead of steam, you will be contributing disproportionately to storage, to transport, and the decarbonisation of transport, and to gas substitution. So we're not going to be as heavily dependent on fossil fuels uh, uh, for those, those purposes as we were in the past. So I just want to take my hat off to you guys. You are showing us all how to do it. Um, if the rest of the world was doing what you're doing, we would have the biggest part of the climate problem on a very long way towards being solved, and that being the electricity generation sector with big inroads um, happening elsewhere. But the problem we have is that the world is way, way behind you here in South Australia. I guess that's good news for you because you are going to be building new industries, training brilliant people who go off and do what you're doing now in other parts of the world. It is fantastic for South Australia, but sad for the rest of the world. Just how far behind we are is shown by the raw figures that dictate the extent of climate change. On the 4th of March 2018, so less than a week ago, uh, CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere were just the tiniest shade below 410 parts per million. Right? That is way, way up on when I wrote The Weathermakers um, years ago. The concentration of CO2 is rising at an unprecedented rate, over two parts per million on average um, per decade. And the rate at which the warming uh, that's being driven by that CO2 is uh, increasing is about 100 times faster than any other period recorded in geological history. Right, so we are facing with the beginnings of what will become very severe problems in coming decades unless we pull out all stops now. Um, despite the signing of the Paris Agreement, uh, we haven't done as much globally as we should. For three years, between um, 2014 and 2016, emissions of CO2 and other greenhouse gases from human sources had stabilised, so there'd been no increase. I was really optimistic we were, we were going to turn things around. But 2017, we saw an increase of 3.5%, partly because America was dead in the water, not decreasing as it had up to that point, and partly because there was a very dry year in China which minimised hydroelectricity, uh, along with a very strong economic stimulus package that increased Chinese emissions by 3.5%. Now, these might be transient problems, but if you look at Australia and what we're doing here and extrapolate to many other parts of the world, you can see that we have enormous challenges that we are not 
we, we don't have the energetic approach to regulation and politics that we need to overcome uh, this problem. As all of this is happening, we're entering what I would call the acute stage of the climate problem. Up until now, we've seen climate impacts. Some of them have been spectacular, but we haven't seen mass systemic change yet of the scale, which is almost certainly to come. And how can I say that it's almost certainly going to come? It's because the greenhouse gases that will drive that change are already in the atmosphere. Right? We've already put them in. They will be accumulating heat close to the Earth's surface for several decades to come. Uh, and what that means is that the 2020s will be worse than the teens, the 2030s will be worse than the 2020s, maybe by the 2040s if we really start pulling a finger out now we can start improving things. But we will face two decades of change now, um, even uh, if, we, if we, we do our utmost. We've just missed the chance to get in early and solve the problem. And if I could just say, Robin, you'd remember the, the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. If we'd have started then, we would have had the easiest trajectory to solving this problem. We missed the chance. If we'd started after the Copenhagen meeting, we would have had a pretty good chance at avoiding the worst of, of climate change. But leaving it to 2015, and still as of 2018, not acting as strongly as we need to, we are really up against it. We are entering the acute phase of the problem. By 2030, we will have passed through this acute phase and we'll be in a, a phase, if we do nothing, which uh, will really be a future where it'll be very hard to alter the outcomes. If we leave it another decade, the greenhouse gas burden will have built up so much that no matter what we do, it is going to be very difficult um, to, to reduce uh, the, the impacts. As it is now in this acute phase of the problem, we not only have to cut emissions as hard and fast as we can from all human sources, but we also have to build carbon negative technologies that will uh, minimise uh, or get gas out of the air in an attempt to minimise um, uh, the future impacts. As it is now, we've, there's a moderately good chance that even if we never emitted another uh, kilogram of CO2, we'd still reach one and a half degrees of warming. Um, by 2030, that's going to be an inevitability, and probably two degrees of warming will be an inevitability. So that is um, a scenario that we've got to act now in order to avoid. When you look at the cost of runaway climate change, you, you can see how severe they'll be. There you can, a fair case can be mounted now that the barrier reef has suffered terminal or near terminal damage. We've had back-to-back -back bleaching events in the last several years. There was never a bleaching event recorded before 1976. It takes coral a decade or more uh, to recover from a severe bleaching event. So as these bleaching events get more frequent, uh, closer together, the coral has less time to recover and, uh, and the reef will slowly vanish. So what happens if the reef is mostly dead in a decade or so from now? We lose all of that biodiversity, we'll lose our tourism, we'll lose our fisheries and we will have increasing damage on the Queensland coast because the great barrier that always protected that coast from storm events will be gone. So the costs will simply escalate. If we look to the planets north in the Arctic, 
we can see the melting of those ice caps. We, you probably read in March that temperatures at the pole in the dead of winter, the North Pole, were above freezing and stayed above freezing for a number of days in what climate scientists said was an unprecedented event. So those uh, Arctic ecosystems with their walrus and narwhal and, um, and polar bears, it's hard to see them surviving if we continue on our present trajectory. There's a lot at stake, but there's a lot that can be done. And before I finish, I just want to point to a few opportunities that are directly relevant here to South Australia. As I said earlier, you guys have done so much. You've created a decarbonised uh, electricity grid, by and large. You, you're really now powering down the hydrogen economy uh, line. You've invented new forms of agriculture. All fantastic and absolutely necessary. But there are some big opportunities that are yet to be grasped. And one of the largest of them all is, a, is, is the, an opportunity for a carbon negative technology that South Australia is uniquely positioned to take up. And that opportunity concerns seaweed. You know that seaweed grows 30 to 60 times faster than land-based plants. It grows very, very fast. It likes cold, nutrient-rich water. You guys have got a lot of that, right? And we've found out, just in publications done over the last 8 to 12 months, that in fact a lot of seaweed is sequestered in the deep ocean. So the carbon in that seaweed gets into the deep ocean and uh, that carbon doesn't resurface over time scales and are meaningful in terms of climate change. So if we can grow seaweed in areas where we can get some of the crop into the deep ocean, we're on a winner. We can sequester lots and lots of CO2. South Australia not only has the cold water to grow seaweed, it has a marine topography that is uniquely suited to sequestration. Most of the seaweed that gets into the deep oceans seems to get there through submarine canyons. There's about 660 submarine canyons identified around the planet, and one of the largest and deepest is right here off Kangaroo Island, four kilometre deep submarine canyon. That is like a superhighway for taking seaweed, if you want, into the deep ocean and out of the system, along with all of the carbon that's in that seaweed. You also have a fantastic uh, technical expertise here in marine engineering. The tuna industry, the offshore uh, aquaculture industry, has shown us how we can build durable structures to grow fish in the Southern Ocean. So you've got the two things that are really required to make a difference. What you need now is the investment, I think, to capitalise on that. Can you imagine a marine permaculture system operating off Kangaroo Island, which is producing not only seaweed, but high quality marine protein for export to Asia, which is utilising some of that seaweed crop while some of it is being sequestered in the deep ocean. In the US over the last budget cycle, which was President Trump's first budget, I hate to say, but uh, I must say, um, two very important tax credits were given for the sequestration of carbon. One was a $50 a tonne tax credit for the geological sequestration of carbon. Now that could mean the disposal of seaweed into the deep ocean because it's on a geological timescale in terms of storage. The other was a $35 a tonne tax credit for the profitable use of sequestered carbon. And again, that marine permaculture is front and centre for those sort of tax credits. They're the sort of incentives we need at the state government or federal government level to start building new industries that will not only help feed the world, but will help sequester carbon at the gigaton scale. 
eventually. So I just say to you all before I uh, stop, you are in the ringside seat. You people and your vote has never been more important. You've led the way for the rest of Australia and much of the world. And yet the opportunities are there to do much more. Could I just beg you to take this next election seriously, talk to your politicians about what they're going to offer in terms of climate change, and vote for the best package. There's never been an election as important now because we are entering the acute phase of the crisis. What we do now and over the next four years will have a disproportionate impact. So I'm going to stop there and sit down, um, but perhaps uh, have some questions with Robin. I may have to sit on the same couch as you, Robin. I think we've got one uh, microphone. Well done, Tim. Now, one of your last books was called Atmosphere of Hope. Has your hope diminished? It's, uh, it's suspended at the moment. Um, I had really hoped that we would start to see a decline in human-based emissions, but that hasn't happened. They still, they're up at 50 gigatons a year. And, you know, to take out five gigatons of carbon a year from the atmosphere by planting trees, for example, you'd need to cover North America in trees. Gives you a sense of the scale of those emissions. At the moment, they're killing many of the trees in North America instead. Yeah, that's right. So that side is despairing, and yet you come here to a state like South Australia and see what's happening and see some of the other innovative regions around the world, and you've got to have hope. One thing that I really do not understand, because many people smear the sort of thing you've been saying as leftist or greeny, implying you're anti-capitalist, yet... Surely what we're talking about are the new technologies, the new ways you can invest, the entrepreneurial opportunities of the future instead of 19th century old-fashioned technology. Well, if you can't, yeah, um, that's right. I mean, I've often found, you know, if you can't win an argument with facts, you, you, you try to win it by slandering people, you know, and that's what they're trying to do or, or use words that are meaningless, right? But tell that to Elon Musk, that's what I say to people, just... You know, of course this is the future. Young people recognise it. They're already making good money in new industries uh, in this way. And um, it's, uh, the politics of this whole thing is bizarre beyond reckoning. But really. why is it going... Why aren't people investing in what seems to be a fair bet? I could list you so many technologies that could make a difference. Mm. Some of them that are taking off you have. Why don't you have people jumping in with, with money instead of investing in the old-fashioned stuff that is likely to plunge? Look, I think part of the reason is just uncertainty. You know, markets don't like regulatory uncertainty, and one way of holding back that investment is just by creating an uncertain regulatory environment. But did you see Four Corners last Monday? Uh, no, I didn't. What was it? Did you see Four Corners last Monday? It was a whole program with no politicians but only business people and they're all saying similar things to you. Yeah, well... The business people are mm. acting already in many areas in ways that are completely straightforward and concerned and getting on with it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, with them there was no argument. I don't know whether the leftist editors at the Four Corners studio <laughs> have been... The, <laughs> the, the Brothers Enclave has been destroyed... But no, it was absolutely one hour of powerful stuff from people in business who realised exactly the sort of things we've been talking about. Look, if you can do it in South Australia, you can do it in many other parts of the world. There's no doubt about that. And I, it, but it is that regulatory uncertainty, you know. I, 
I remember I came to South Australia in 1999. I lived here for seven years. And I saw the, the beginnings, really, of a consistent state government approach to investment in things like wind and solar. You know, and it's taken a long time to build, as of course it, you know, it, it should. But that consistency has been hugely important, I think, in this state. And you know, where we've got governments that chop and change policy or come up with crazy stuff one week and then ditch it and something else the next, it's very hard for markets to invest in that sort of circumstance. How do you grow kelp, which is the seaweed you're talking about, on a scale that will make a difference? And why isn't it just growing anyway? Aha, uh -huh. well, that's the great question. The reason it isn't growing everywhere, particularly in the deep ocean, is that there's no nutrients in the top 300 metres of the ocean. They've all been used up. That's the photic zone, so they've all been used up. So kelp needs both sunlight and nutrients. So the answer, the question is really, how do you get the nutrients to the kelp? Now, there's a brand new um, seaweed farm by a group called Marine Permaculture, who are come out of Woods Hole, as you probably know, in, uh, on the east coast of the USA who are, they have already built a 100 metre array, 100 metres by 100 metres. It'll be deployed in the Indian Ocean over the next four months or so. And it uses renewable energy, so wave energy and, and solar, to, to pump water up 300 metres um, uh, to the, the kelp farm, which sits 25 metres below the surface and will irrigate the kelp with that cold, nutrient-rich water. And they'll grow more than just kelp on that farm. They're growing a whole lot of high-quality But can you do it on resources. a scale that will make a difference to our weather? Absolutely, you could. Yeah, yeah. I mean, much better than growing trees, in the sense that if you try to do it with trees, we've got limited land area, and trees grow so much slower than kelp. So you've got a much better chance. And the best estimates that, that I and others have on this is by 2050, you could be doing four gigatons of carbon a year. So, you know, 15 gigatons of CO2 in round figures. Um, so that's a big, big contribution. And in and the film you did, and in fact mm. in your book as well as the film, you showed that there are various products, food indeed, that you can make with kelp. You, you can make ama amazing food, medications, um, paper, structural materials. Lots and lots of stuff. Plastics, it's, just, it's endless, you know, what, what's being done in Asia with this stuff. So you can sequester some there, but the key is, I think, having a carbon price that lets you sequester some of that kelp in the deep ocean, because then that is absolutely out of the system. Now, I mentioned the Four Corners. I don't think it's uh, breaking an embargo to say that uh, the heads of academies of the Commonwealth on Monday are going to make an announcement. I won't say what it is, but it's to do with climate again. These are, you know, Venki Ramakrishna, who's the president of the Royal Society of London. By the way, where did Venki Ramakrishna, the first Indian to uh, head the Royal Society, where did he go to school? I'd only be guessing, but I'd say Eton. <laughs> Lots of Indians go to or am I wrong? Unley Primary School. Really? Wow, that's fantastic, Robin. That's amazing. Wow. So we've got him and about 30 other heads of academies around the Commonwealth putting out a statement on Monday about climate. I won't say any more, otherwise I'll be in trouble. You've had the Four Corners, you've had the statement that I've just been broadcasting uh, on the science show, which is the uh, assessment in America yeah. of the impact of climate. And my feeling is that 2018 is different. Things have taken off. Mm. People are beginning to take it much more seriously than they did before, as if the evidence has reached a tipping point and people are convinced. Do you agree? 
I hope you're right. I hope. Look, it, it really has to be. You know, when you talk to the experts in the fields, they were deeply concerned a decade ago. Now they are terrified because they can see the, these are the last moments, really, this next decade, where we'll have any control over the system. So we have to make those deep cuts starting now. And in a sense, I think that's why we're getting such a big pushback from the traditional industries as well. They see this as their last gasp as well. Even BHP the other day has yeah. pulled out of its alliance with the coal people, the Minerals Council of Australia, and the world. Even BHP. Yeah, that's a big thing. It certainly is. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. I want to ask you a few detailed questions about uh, some of the technologies. For instance, uh, critics of some of the wind turbines are saying they're becoming more and more expensive and their building is using as much in the way of energy and carbon and such like as if you went for other systems. What do you think about that argument? Just say, look, the facts on the ground are pointing in exactly the opposite direction. Do we buy more cars as they become more expensive for the same model? No, you don't. I mean, you look at G GE is one example, right? They've just announced a 12 megawatt offshore wind turbine. Can you imagine that? I mean, today an 8 megawatt wind turbine is huge. 12 megawatts is going to be the next one, and they're going to be offshore, and they are cheaper than ever. So the price of, of wind energy is going down, the price of solar is going down even more spectacularly, and the price of storage is decreasing. So we can see in the electricity sector, I, I think no one will ever build another coal-fired power plant in Australia, and probably shouldn't be building them anywhere else. And um, this bit of news is for our friends, the bats and the trees up there, uh, and the birds are flying past. Something I picked up in Texas when I was attending the AAAS meeting, that's the American Association's Advancement of Science. What they've developed is a kind of echo screen, which you put up near a wind turbine, that reflects sound. And when birds are flying, I don't know about the bats, I'll have to ask them later, is they are often just looking down. Yeah. They're not looking ahead to where they're flying in the sky. Mm. And so what they're doing when they're going tweet, tweet, or making whatever noises they are up there, is waiting for some sort of feedback. And if, the, if you put a plate up next to the turbine, it reflects the sound, and the bird goes, oh shit. And they look up and they avoid the turbine. Yeah. So the technology, however simple now, is there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, they're just the first innovations that, of many, I think, that'll cascade down the production chain. So, you know, plastics now, you know, they are, you know, obviously the world is choking on the damn stuff. But in future, we will be able to use um, uh, biological materials for plastics or direct air capture of CO2 for degradable plastics or plastic substitutes. So there's a big opportunity in that area. I mean, it'd be nice to do without them all together and just use banana leaves, but, you know, maybe one day we will, but at the moment that's not there. I mean, carbon fibre is the other huge area. You know, there's this breakthrough two years ago in the USA where people um, have been able to create carbon fibre from atmospheric CO2 directly at a cost, they say, competitive with current production methods. So, you know, once carbon fibre gets cheap enough, who is going to want to use aluminium or steel for many purposes? You know, using, using the problem, atmospheric CO2, to outcompete sources of pollution is really smart stuff. So once we start moving that way, we will really, I think, start having a, a, a significant impact. I want to ask you about sequestration, which you mentioned in terms of the uh, seaweeds, kelp. 
but uh, just a mention of something I picked up in Caltech two weeks ago. And if you meet someone from Caltech, they've got at least one Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just outrageous how clever they are. And this professor of chemistry was telling me about something, an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase. Oh, my God. What is, what's that? Well, it's keeping you alive at the moment because when you breathe out, your CO2 leaves your system dissolved and comes out of your lungs and you breathe it out, you know. And uh, the system's working like that all the time. Now, if you reverse the process and you want to get CO2 into water, then you add the enzyme and it goes 500 times faster than it might do in ordinary systems in nature. So the idea that they're talking about is to scale it up so that you can get a factory system. There are a number of ways in which you can get that negative carbon you're talking about, absorbing CO2. Now, if you can do it 500 times faster than it's normal, that should be really good fun, as long as someone, again, invests. Now, what sort of things have you seen around the place for sequestration apart from the carbon fibres you're talking about. Yeah, sure. Is there much going on? Look, uh, Siemens, um, I worked with Siemens for a number of years and they are looking at exactly that technology. So you dissolve CO2 in water, run a weak electrical current through it and you can create the building blocks for a whole lot of materials that are useful in many industrial processes and substitute for fossil fuels. So that's just one, one small example of that. Um, we can grind up silicate rocks, which are, you know, they're rich. There are many silicate rocks around the, the, the planet. Um, and as they de- decompose, they absorb atmospheric CO2. Now, I've got a friend who's a glaciologist um, and geologist working in Greenland. And he said that, you know, as the glaciers recede, there are gigatons of rock flour being exposed. So if you want to, you know, and they have silicate rocks in them. So if you want to, for example... Um, use them to, as a soil amendment where they'll absorb CO2 or in the oceans to, um, to, to, to absorb CO2 out of the ocean water. You can transport them at relatively low costs. So there, there's another group of people talking about capturing CO2 over the um, Antarctic ice cap as dry ice. So, you know, chill the, chill the air a few tens of degrees, let the dry ice fall as snow and bury it in the ice cap. Again, you know, these are, these are possibilities, but... Um, I think that uh, as, as time goes on, we'll see more and more of these. Which ones are going to be the winners, I don't know, but I have a strong feeling seaweed is going to play a role in this. It's already a $12 billion a year industry. Um, we understand it very well. Um, we now know how it's sequestered, um, and I think that that is going to be a race very quickly to, to, to unlock the potential of that, that material. What about the development of the coastline? I've mentioned in this forum and various other places uh, the role of seagrasses, which absorbed 100 times, 40 to 100 times more CO2 than tropical rainforests. Bloody seagrasses. So if you preserve the coastline and what's under the water and you develop it in a way that enhances what's around, according to uh, Jane Lipchenko, who is the former head of what they call NOAA, the the Oceanic and Atmospheric Organization uh, under Obama, you will increase the creation of wealth by 30%. So you don't shut down industry by preserving nature, you increase it by enhancing what's going on there, as you said, tourism and such like. Seagrasses, who'd have thought? I, it's, I know, it's amazing. You know, whatever is beneath the waves there is hidden to our view, so we don't really um, appreciate it as much as we should. And often, as you say, people degrade seagrass for no good reason, whatever. 
Um, but this state is very fortunate. You've got a really forward-looking um, organisation called SADI here, which does a lot in the marine environment. And I think with those, those new values and new appreciations, and particularly the value of sequestered carbon, we can see huge opportunities in, in that area. It's interesting that you know this, we're so land-based. Land we, we don't look under the oceans, and yet it's 72% of the surface of the planet. And the systems really are different there. They work at a different scale and in a different way. Before I ask for questions, a couple of personal ones to you. Do you get put off by being attacked for the hundredth time in the papers? God, I've got the skin of a rhinoceros by now. I think I don't. <laughs> I, I, look, I don't. I just think it, it's like a game of rugby, right? You know, we've got, we've got possession of the ball. We're running for the try line. You know, we've made some steps forward. And every bugger on the other team is going to be using every tactic, legal and illegal, to trip you up before you get there. So we've just got to keep pushing on. <laughs> don't worry about them. Just watch the ball and watch the game. So you don't lose it now and then? Uh, well, <laughs> in private perhaps, but not in public. <laughs> yeah, special resilience, I must say. Well, uh, and why do you think it's coming from certain forces? Can you guess? Look, old men don't like losing power. I'm sorry, I'm an old man myself, but it is, it is it's what it comes down to, Robin, I'm You're afraid. You just turned 60, that's nothing. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bloody Methuselah, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't know. In any case, it, it is, you know, that's what they, you know, power being able to depose prime ministers is where you get your thrills if you're a multi-billionaire, for some people in the world today. Other people do good things with their money, but, they're, you know, people don't like change, and if you've done very well under the old system, you'll like change even less. And there's a lot of ego there as well. I mean, people, people who built the world as we know it through uh, extracting fossil fuels or whatever their ego is all tied up in that old world. And so, of course, they're not going to like, like change. Sure, we've been talking mainly about the Anglo countries, well, mm. America, Australia. What about the rest of the world? Is, are there places where people are really getting on with it and showing some great success? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, Europe has done some astonishing things. I mean, they were the early pioneers, um, and they still continue to do great things. And some of the innovation companies in Europe are doing a lot. Um, and China, of course, now is the big runaway success. And because they're not very rich in fossil fuels and um, they've understood that they can use manufacturing to create energy, right, that is a huge breakthrough. So China is now going for broke with this sort of stuff. And I think we'll be surprised at the speed of the transition in some areas. So electric vehicles is a good example. Um, so much is happening in China, and yet it's hidden from our view, really, because it's such a different sort of place. But when they start manufacturing these things by the hundreds of thousands or millions and start exporting, that's when we'll see the difference. It will, it will come at us, I think, like a big wave. Whereas at the moment, you know, Tesla, what are they, they're struggling to do, what, a few thousand a month, I think but the Chinese will do it by the hundreds of thousands. Well, of course, you know that Martin Green and the University of New South Wales has held the world record for solar yeah. uh, of the silicon type for a long time. And one of his ex-students, Sheng Rongqi, yeah. became the first billionaire of private industry in China. Yeah. And yeah. he's doing well, but one wonders why it is that we have to have that kind of industry going from Australia as an idea and exploited in China as an industry. Well, the University of New South Wales deserves some sort of Darwin Award or something, some backwards award, because 
at the same time they did all of that, you know, they, they also um, sold the patents to, to a solar hot water system, which is now the most widely deployed solar hot water system in the world. There are billions of units out there. They sold the patents for $160,000 to a Chinese company. Sold them. Didn't even reserve 1% or a tenth of 1%. The university would have been like Harvard if they'd done that. But, I mean, geez, you know. And, of course, it was, it was John Howard that, that shut down the, the solar stuff, you know, because coal is the future. Why should we worry about solar, you know? Anyway. And the same thing was going for uh, the, the other kind of solar, that is just heating the water. Yeah, which, that's right. uh, Well, that's no. solar hot water. That was that's what right. the other one was for. This, this, that's right. Yeah, right. It, was just, yeah. it was a very simple system, perfectly suited for China, and um, there's billions of units out there today. And yeah. does that kind of solar system have a future, do you think? Oh, yeah, sure. Look, there are so many different sorts of uh, ways of harnessing the sun's energy. You know, one of the really interesting ones is the, is the solar thermal technology where you can... Uh, Take the, you concentrate the sun's sunlight, so you've got, a, a, say, a 1,000 degrees C. Um, with that very high-quality heat, you can do lots and lots of things in terms of industrial processes or desalinisation or whatever, but you can also store it, you know. And I think that those solar thermal technologies, and again, South Australia has promised, I think, to build the largest solar thermal plant in the country in the next couple of years at Port Augusta. Um, they will be transformational. Okay, questions. So, if you put your hand up. Could I just say, Rob, before we get on, you know, I remember being here a couple of years ago when there was a group of young people working for 350.org who did a walk to Port Augusta in support of that, of that um, solar, solar thermal power plant being built. And we never give them credit, these young people, for walking 400 kilometres and putting the heat on the, on the state government for doing it. But they really deserve a round of applause. One there in the middle. Thank you, it's been fantastic. I just would like um, uh, some words for my 11-year-old daughter here, please, who's listening. Well, f for, what's her name? Kelly. Harper. Harper. Look, Harper, um, we stuffed up pretty badly. I'm sorry. We've done our... Some of us have done our best, but we are going to have some rough times ahead. I think you'll still have a great quality of life here in South Australia, but we'll see impacts on our biodiversity that we'd rather not have seen. But it's... For your generation and people a bit older than you, there are huge opportunities in this, and you're so lucky being here in South Australia. You know, whatever you study at school, you could be part of a great new transformational enterprise, whether it's, you know, communication, the arts or the sciences. Um, We're going to need so many diverse skills as we transition into this new economic model that just keep your eye open for that. Do as much as you can, and I think we can avoid the worst of climate change still if we act promptly. One thing I'll add to that is I broadcast a program last Sunday which involved... In fact, a student at the University of New South Wales working with school kids, 14, 15, 16 years old, who were in connection with the space station. They weren't waiting to graduate or grow up. They were doing it now. Kids can do it now. Don't wait. Wait for the mic. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you. Um, just back to the doom and gloom for a minute. You said that there were going to be at least two decades of uh, things happening between now and whatever we do. Mm. What I'd like to know is, are there any potential benefits from climate change and climate warming? I mean, we, we know about the change in weather and the sort of big events and the floods and the flooding of the low-lying areas, but is it possible that there are sort of uh, enough, there will be enough moisture generated to, say, start greening parts of the Sahara or other parts of Africa? Because I'm a little bit unclear about yeah. the actual fact of climate change being totally negative. Sure. Look, the science around that is, is very complex because the sort of world that we're headed for at the moment is a world, you know, under the Paris Agreement, about three degrees warmer than current. So the last time the world was that warm was about five million years ago, and we can look at the fossils from that time, and we see that in fact the world was did have more rainfall back then, and um, there, were, there were many other differences and probably more productivity, but there wasn't the the Arctic habitats and a lot of the alpine environments we have now and so forth. Now you might think that well, as we get towards that world, we'll have more rainfall, and and. That's unfortunately not true because the speed of the change also has a big impact. And one very good example of this is the withdrawal of rainfall from southern Australia, right, which we've seen for the last few decades. Now, if it was just a linear matter of going back to the Pliocene of three million years ago, we would have an Alibor plain with big forests on it, right, now instead of less rainfall. But what's happening as is that the, the, the very rapid rate of warming is causing some distortions in the way the climate system works. And so while that warming persists at this rate, that southern rainfall zone will continue moving south. So it's a really complex question. And th the way I view it is really that climate change is not a destination but a process. And for people who rely on stability you know, during this period of rapid change, there's going to be challenges. Some, I guess, conceivably, there might be some benefits, maybe less frost, frost events in northern hemisphere wheat areas or, or plant growing areas. But for every one of those, there's going to be a lot of negative events as well. So um, it's a complex science, and I, I, you know, I, I just reflect the kind of, I guess, the scientific consensus that it's going to be lots and lots of negatives and, and very few positives. Hi. Um You've spoken a lot about South Australia being involved in a lot of innovative projects to do with moving towards battling um, climate change and that sort of thing. But we're also at the moment dealing with a lot of contrasting projects like the exploration of oil and gas in our Great Australian Bight. Um, I wanted to know, one, what your opinion on projects in coastal areas like that in terms of what you've said about growing kelp forests and that sort of stuff. Um, and if you think for the next few years, there is going to be this battle between very contrasting projects, people trying to move forward and people trying to keep us in the same place, or if you think that at the moment it's kind of a last-ditch effort for these kind of industry-type projects. My gut feeling is it's a large last-ditch effort. So if we look at exploration for oil and gas in the Gulf, in the, in the Great Australian Bight, you know, my guess is that there'd be a number of years of exploration there and then a number of years of development before you get any return on your billion dollar plus investment. So you might be looking a decade out. And you know, if I was looking at that and looking at South Australia and say, well, the hydrogen economy is coming along pretty quickly 
Um, electric vehicles are coming along pretty quickly. Is my oil really going to be worth recovering a decade from now, or my gas? Um, and I guess the, the, the old dinosaur industries are making a bet that it is. My gut feeling is that's wrong. And let's just, just pick apart hydrogen, right? As I said, 97% of the world's nitrogenous fertilisers are made from natural gas at the moment. But right here in South Australia, you're developing a plant that's going to be making them from wind and solar electricity. Amazing stuff, right? Cost competitively. So um, that is a huge step. And, and the hydrogen that'll be generated as well, you can shandy that into the gas pipelines, I think on the order of 15%, without deleterious effects. So again, you're lessening the demand for gas. As we start getting into the technologies that Robin talked about with these um, means of capturing CO2, you start developing, again, the opportunities, cost-effective opportunities for um, substituting a lot more of the fossil fuel, the uses of fossil fuel we have. So we're in a period of great transitional change. Um, and, you know, it, I reckon it's a bit like a dinosaur, you know, it's been shot in the head but the tail's still kind of moving, it takes a while for the signal to get down. Let's hope that's right. The more pressure we can put on these projects for delay, in fact, will be better because I think five years from now it'll be evident to everyone uh, where we stand. I'll give you one more example. Imagine that we're sitting in a very posh room and we're getting a bit cold because, you know, we're in northern Europe and we happen to be sitting on Louis XIV's furniture, it's made of wood, and we think, oh, yes, let's chop it up, put it in the fire. Yeah. Here you've got the basis in oil and coal of chemical industries yeah. to do all sorts of things, and you mentioned fertiliser, mm -hmm. drugs, you name it, the plastics, well, all sorts of things that uh, you could do with them. Burning them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well. Please. Hello. Um, Tim, I'm one of a couple of early childhood educators sitting here today, um, committed to actually breaking down these very difficult concepts to the understanding of four and five-year-olds. Um, and I know I speak on behalf of both of us that we strongly believe that if we actually educate these young people and they go on with this in their education for the future, that there's hope for us all. I guess my question is, do we have time to wait for these four and five-year-olds who then can have these, um, these ideals instilled in them from now through to the future? Do we have time to wait for that? No, no, we don't. We have to be the colossuses that holds up the sky for those kids to give them time to grow and then fulfil their part of that process because we're not going to solve the problem over our generation, but unless we perform superbly this next decade, they won't have the opportunity to the full to, to do what they, uh, what they can to address the problem. So, you know, look, for me, four-year-olds and five-year-olds are the most precious resource we have. Keep their, to keep their imagination alive and, and, and give them a sense of optimism are the most important things and a sense of confidence, really, at that age, because they're the ones who go on and take full advantage of some of these opportunities like seaweed farming or sea negative technologies. Our job now is to cut emissions, I think, and start creating those opportunities. Because they're not going to be mature for several decades at the scale we want. Yeah, it's like wind and solar. It took four decades to grow to where they are today. Well, these new carbon negative technologies are probably going to develop along similar timelines just because it takes a long time to grow those industries. But, um, yeah, like... 
it is, it's all about, for me, imagination, possibility, confidence, love, all of those things. You know it better than I do for those kids. Um, hi, Tim. Uh, you've been talking a lot about carbon in the atmosphere, and we're measuring that quite accurately. I'm more worried about carbon absorption in the oceans and whether or not we've already pushed the oceans over you know, kind of its balance or whether or not it has a chance to recover. It's a great question. And you know, one of the biggest concerns that climate scientists have now is the weakening carbon sinks of our planet. So the ocean is the most important carbon sink, but it, every year that goes on, it's less able to absorb the CO2, to the, you know, other things being equal to the same extent. So that is a really, really massive issue. And it's one of the things that just makes the problem so much worse. So when you look at the conventional accounting as to whether we're committed to one and a half degrees or two degrees, you know, if you factor that in, it, it's, it makes it more likely we're committed to two degrees than one and a half degrees. It's a big concern, but it's nothing we can turn around quickly. You know, we have to attack the problem at source, which are the emissions, and then start building those new approaches that will take some CO2 out fast, like seaweed. Seaweed can do a lot. One thing I'd add to that, actually, is uh, the process I mentioned before of the enzyme and putting the CO2 into the ocean to be absorbed. It produces bicarbonate which, as you know, when you've got an upset tummy, is an antacid. <laughs> so what you're doing is reducing the acid yeah. effect. Whether you can do so on the scale that makes a difference, who knows, but at least it's going in the right direction. Yeah, Tim. Um, I'm wondering about soil carbon mm. and the issue of, dare I say, of weeds. In Brazil, they're using eucalypt a lot because it sequesters carbon. It grows quickly. They can put it back into the soil, sequesters carbon. In this country, it doesn't matter where you go. If you go into the suburb, suburbs, if you go into rural landscapes, if you go into national parks, you'll find a lot of glyphosate, glyphosate, sorry, uh, metasulfurin. You'll get a lot of herbicides used because there is an image of weeds as being a negative connotation. Where do you stand on the hybridization of landscapes, i.e. permaculture, yeah, yeah. and where you sort of come up against maybe a a sort of ideal aspect of what the Australian landscape should look like, and given that we've cleared so much land, how do you feel about just allowing weeds to do what they're, what they're doing, which is heal the landscape? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a it's, a... it's a complex question. And um, could I... Look, let's just take it at that fundamental carbon level first, you know. Um, your, all of that stuff is, is potentially sequestered carbon, yeah? There are ways you can deal with, with um, weeds that don't involve glyphosate and that sort of thing. I think we use way, way too many herbicides and pesticides. And if you look at insect abundance, you'll probably cover this, Roman, in, in places like Europe where it's well documented. You know, we've had catastrophic declines of insects which strike at the heart of those terrestrial ecosystems. So I do think we need, we need a new approach. Um, it's interesting, a weed is just a plant out of place, right? And, and so in Europe, ragwort, which is native, is considered a terrible weed <laughs> and great efforts are made to remove it. I'm not enough of an ecological expert in those places to know, but I do think you can create a balance that allows for a diverse ecosystem uh, to persist with some of those new elements in it. In, in, the, in the Mediterranean, you'll see lantana in pots as a, you know, a plant you keep in your garden. Yeah. 
instead of razor wire that you want to get rid of. It's most yeah. extraordinary. What about biochar? That, you know, that was quite fashionable 10 years ago. Yeah, it was, and there are still um, people using biochar um, in various uh, processes. That's where you burn something and make it into a kind of uh, carbon that you add yeah, you to the soil. Of partially burn it, you char it, and, and pyrolyse it. The, the difficulty with all of the terrestrial approaches is one of scale. So getting to a gigaton scale, because we're 50 gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere, getting a gigaton out using any terrestrial approaches is challenging just because the land surface is so limited. So the example I gave earlier of... You know, how, what would we need to do in terms of tree planting to withdraw five gigatons of CO2? You know, it's pretty much cover North America in forest, you know, you can, in round figures, you know. Not a bad idea, actually. No. <laughs> Who's next? Um, hello? Please. Got one there? Yeah. Hi, um, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, my name's Anna, I'm from Queensland. I'm interested, like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert in this area at all. I've got solar panels. I try and make good choices. I look at policies before I vote, that kind of thing. But what would be the one thing that you would advise that we action on that would make a difference moving forward? Actually, if you're coming from Queensland, may I refer you to, you know, I read The Economist all the time. And last week, on one of the articles, it said um, Queensland the buzzsaw capital of the world, where chopping down the trees is worse than in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. Now. Can I just point to one very specific thing? And there's lots you could do as an individual, but just one thing Queensland could do. Queensland has some of the most progressive laws in the country concerning runoff from fish farms, from aquaculture. They allow zero runoff of... Uh, nitrogen and phosphorus, right? And that has led to a total breakthrough in terms of water treatment. So there are new water treatment plants on aquaculture farms in Queensland that lead to zero runoff. But human uh, sewerage farms, human waste farms up and down the coast run off vast amounts of pollution because they're not regulated. Agriculture, other forms of agriculture have still have huge runoff. So as a Queenslander, if you could extend that law from just fish farms to all waste, you would make a huge difference in terms of um, helping the Great Barrier Reef with, with runoff. But you'd also, because those farms use seaweed as the, 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 um, the active ingredient to get the nutrients out of the water, you create a major new, far, a major new material which can be used for fertiliser or, or making biochar or whatever else. And there's lots and lots of it. So. That, I know that might seem off the wall as a kind of weird one, but it's it's an opportunity that Queensland sort of half grasped, you know. Over there. Hi, so um, I'm in year 12 at the moment, and um, the for my research project, I'm looking at the ways in which we can reduce our carbon footprint. And so leading up to that question, I've been looking at why we need to, the negative impacts we're having on the earth or causing. And so on that, I was just wondering, what would you say are the like, biggest factors contributing to climate change? Well, there's one. <laughs> May I just mention there's a book out in 2017 by, you know, Paul Hawken. There are 200 different examples of ways in which you can make a difference in various areas we've discussed, and it gives an assessment of the impact and what happens when you put them all together. So Paul Hawken's book, which uh, I presume you've seen has got it all in it. It's a big book, but lots of colour and, uh, you know, a couple of pages for each. 
Look it up. No, that's fine. That's good. good, good. We'll try to get as many questions as we can answered. Where's that? Good. Where's our ro roving mic gone to? Hello. I've got it here. Oh, 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 right. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Uh, my name's Heather. I'm from the UK. Um, when you're talking about the impasse at the top, the power grab that we see going on at the moment from the characters, political characters such as Trump, Putin, I mean, they're very widespread. A lot of them are less visible. They're behind these sort of big fossil fuel companies, chemical companies. And you talk about character traits such as narcissism, mm. ego, power grabbing. It kind of brings to mind for me this kind of predatory nature, which is a bit like, draws a parallel with the recent phenomena of hashtag Me Too. Mm. And in a way, I think there's a huge need to expose these people. Even though they may say that they're elected, I still think there's a level of exposure that needs to happen. So do you think we need a kind of social media grab that goes out on the lines of hashtag Earth2 or whatever it is, ideas welcome, to say this is no longer acceptable, this is persistent violation. When will it stop? Thank you. I, I, I've been waiting for it. Come on, we've <laughs> been really hoping we'd get onto that. Because the, the Me Too, that, that whole phenomenon was, looked to me to be so powerful. And, and it seems to have sort of like reached a, a stop. And it, ne it needs something else to revitalise it because the kind of the, the sexual uh, predatoriness of those people is just one, as important as it is, just one form of predation on the rest of society. And I think that unless we act to protect our own interests, they will remain in power. We need to do, we need to act in concert in a way that goes beyond voting, um, because it's that, that representation system is broken, to something else, I think. So I agree with you. One last question, please. We've got time for one last one. Yes. You've been waiting for so long. Oh. Okay. Um, I'm an exchange student from Switzerland. I'm currently um, in year 12 here, and I'm doing research project as well. And um, for my research project, I am having a closer look on um, artificial reefs, and therefore I was Wondering if you think it would be like possible, uh, so um, if we increase the number of artificial reefs, it would if it would have a positive impact. Artificial reefs in the ocean. Yeah, look, um, I think it very much depends on where they are and what grows on them. You know, to get permanent sequestration of carbon, we need to get the carbon into the deep ocean. So they need to be somewhere, or whatever it is that we use to grow that, capture that carbon, needs to be somewhere near marine canyons. So um, I, I guess, look, it may have an impact around the, the margins, but if we want large-scale sequestration, it very much depends on that, that location. I think we've got time. This poor fellow, he has been waiting forever. Could someone hand him a microphone? And we can... Put your hand up. Run, run to the mic. Go on. Run to the mic. That's our last one. Thank you. Sorry, I know... We've got about 10 seconds, so be quick. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it actually relates back to the political question. Have you got any suggestions for how we can actually change this political system so that we move on faster? Because the mainstream media support them and they are corporate-backed. How do we escape this system? In 10, in 10 seconds, I think what we've got to do is have people of good standing in the community, like yourself, sir, I hope, um, 
stand for election, say I'll only stand for three years, I've only got one item on the agenda which is to make sure that every um, piece of legislation that's passed or, and, and actions has to go through a citizen jury. So we citizen pay people jury. for their time, people chosen at random who can make the decisions. So Parliament becomes really the agenda setting thing. Thank you. I would suggest on the other hand as well, going back to the Me Too question, that the uh, MPs respond to something that they clearly perceive as what their constituents want. At the moment, the constituents are talking only about what they call retail politics, the price of electricity, the amount of money you put in the health system, and those things which are for next Tuesday, not next year. And the minute you get the voice, the clamour that's about next year and next decade, then the atmosphere changed completely, literally. Yeah. Would you please thank Tim Flannery? And thank you for staying cool.